Well, is anybody ready for the Word of God today? Amen, amen. Well, I hope you're ready because I'm excited to bring it to you. Today, if you are a guest with us or if you're tuning in online for the first time, you are here for the fourth week and the conclusion of a series. As you could tell by the bumper video, it's called Unchanged. And we all understand that we're living in a reality where a lot is changing really fast. So this series is not about a denial of the circumstances, but it's about the convictions of our heart. And there are four purposes for which the church of Jesus Christ was established. And I don't mean this church. I don't talk, I'm not talking about something I established or my predecessors established. I'm talking about the church that Jesus is coming back for, his bride, the body of Christ, the capital C global church. It was established with four purposes. And we've been talking about those four purposes. They are that we're called to gather, we're called to grow, we're called to give, and we're called to go. The way we gather is in worship. And let me just say, you guys sounded amazing in worship this morning. Isn't it good to worship with God's people? Amen? So grateful to just link my faith up with other people, to declare the truth of what God has done and what God can do with other people. The Bible says when we do that, we encourage one another. We help one another when we gather and when we worship, but the growing happens in discipleship. And if I had time, I'd talk about that for a long time because we're about to put discipleship materials in the hands of our life group leaders. And many of you are stepping into being a life group leader for the first time, or maybe you're joining a life group for the first time. And some of you, you're on the fence and you're thinking, why does that even matter? Why is it important? It matters because discipleship happens in the context of relationships. And relationships are much more easily formed in a circle than in a row. That's not to diminish at all what God does in this gathering. It's to say that God has more for you than an hour on Sunday. Amen? And so discipleship happens in relationships. It's what we're called to do. This life groups, small groups, cell groups, whatever you want to call them, that's not a new thing. That's not a 20th century idea or a 21st century idea. Acts chapter 2 says, and they met from house to house. That was a first century idea. We're called to discipleship. Can't wait to put those materials in your hands. But we're also called to evangelism. We're called to take the message of the gospel to the world, and we talked about that last week. But today, I want to focus in on how we give. And we give through compassion. So if I can just lay a foundation for these thoughts today, let me begin with just a Webster's Dictionary definition of compassion. It means this, <clears throat> a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. In other words, compassion is more than pity. It's not just pitying someone in their point of need. Compassion implies pity that is coupled with an urgent desire to give aid or to spare. I'll give you a couple examples of how I see compassion in this church just in the last week. Uh, J.T. Gill is one of our uh, ministry leaders in this church. Every Tuesday night, he hosts a life recovery meeting here at the church. He, he was in our earlier service, and every Tuesday night, he hosts that meeting. Why? To help people and to meet people at their point of need. People who have dealt with everything from uh, substance abuse and addictions to just, just 
battles in their mind with depression or anxiety. It's, it's a compassion-based ministry. Jim Martin was in our earlier service today, and Jim is the director of our local food pantry, <clears throat> where he, he helps facilitate meeting people's needs, putting food on the table. Many of you, you take those orange bags that we have out there in the lobby, and you fill them up every month with groceries, not for your family, but for somebody else's, to stock the shelves of the food pantry. Why? Because that's compassion. Just this week on Thursday, every month we have the mobile food bank come and they parked in our parking lot for the afternoon so that people could come. <clears throat> Who, whosoever will, whoever needs a box of groceries, you can just show up and they'll bless you. They'll give that to you, no strings attached. Why? Because that's compassion. Let me give you one more example. This Friday coming up, Good Friday, our students in our youth ministry, some of these that are here on the second row and many others today, they're doing something. They're raising money to be a part of something called the Big Give. This Friday coming up, they're going to try with other students all across Pennsylvania and Delaware to collect an offering in the Big Give of $90,000. <clears> Teenagers are doing this, saving their chore money or their part-time job money or digging through the couch cushions. Why? I can tell you it's not because they're, they're putting in a roller coaster at youth camp. No, they're doing it because they want to give a $90,000 offering to Project Rescue. Because Project Rescue is going into some of the worst red light districts of the world and they're rescuing women and children out of human trafficking. And $90,000 will provide three rescue vehicles to go and to rescue those women. So our students, they're buying in to this idea that I should sacrifice for somebody's behalf, somebody I'll never meet, probably a ministry I'll never get to go and serve. They'll never ride in one of those vehicles, but that's compassion. And you know what? I believe they're going to reach that goal. How many of you believe they can do that? Amen. I believe our young people, the only thing they lack is a challenge. <clears throat> I believe they're going to do it, and God's going to use them in an incredible way. Last week, we are about 10 days ago, our outreach team made up some gift baskets, and we'll show you a picture of what they look like. <clears throat> they took these over to Twin Rose, the, the only medical facility here in Wrightsville, and they gave these gift baskets, these bags, to all the medical staff just as a way of saying, you know what, it's been a year since this global pandemic hit, and we want you to know we love you, and you're not forgotten. And so we just want to bless you. So they, they gave every faculty member there at the medical facility a gift. Why? Because it's compassion. <clears throat> because it's what we're called to do. One more example. Next Sunday's Easter. How many of you already knew that? Okay, just making sure everybody's with me in the, in the late service. Next Sunday's Easter, and I know a lot of people are going to be coming, and they're going to be visiting our service, and they don't usually go to church. I look forward to that, but I also know, and you probably do too, that a lot of times the outside world's perception of the church is not exactly true to who we are. A lot of people, their perception of the church is just what, they, what, what Hollywood tells them, <clears throat> or maybe they get a perception from the worst of us, the extremes on either end. And I know some people, they believe, you know, only the church is just about money. They just want your money. They're just trying to build an organization to get your money. So next Sunday, we've decided for Easter, every bit of the offering that comes in on Easter Sunday, it's going to missions. 
We want to let our guests and our church family know that we are committed to radical generosity. And if you want to participate and you want to give, we'll gladly receive your offering, but we're not keeping any of it. We're just giving it all away. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Because that's compassion. And here's the reality that I want to drill down on today. As representatives of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom, we are called to compassion. Now, I'm going to get to the practical application of this in a few moments, but let me just lay a foundation for us. That God is a God of compassion. A lot of people have this false perception that when you read the Old Testament, that's an angry God. And when you read the New Testament, that's a gracious God. Maybe you've thought that way before. You know, you read, you know, in the Old Testament, man, God's like sending plagues and, and judgment and fire and he's just killing nations and tribes and people. But thank God we live in the new covenant because Jesus is a lot nicer. He carries the lambs. He hugs the children. You know, we want New Testament God. But how many of you know the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie? He said, I am the Lord, I change not. He said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of you know God hasn't changed? And so we can get a false perception of what God was like from some of the stories of God's people. But in the Old Testament, Jeremiah was lamenting over how bad things were in the book of Lamentation. It literally is a book of sorrow. He's lamenting, and the reason he's lamenting is because God had warned the people over and over and over and over and over again that if you don't turn from your sin, if you don't stop worshiping idols, if you don't return to the God of your salvation, judgment's going to come. And how many of you know sometimes God loves us enough to let us reap what we sow? I said it earlier in worship, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And sometimes the best kindness God can give is to let us scrape our knee, to let us see what it's like to walk out from under the covering of his blessing. And so that's what happened in Lamentations. And it was bad. I mean, when when the cup of God's wrath boils over, it comes hot. And Jeremiah was despairing and lamenting over everything that they were dealing with. And yet in the midst of dealing with all of the repercussions of their rebellion, here's what he says in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 21. He said, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. He says in verse 23, They're new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Is anybody besides me glad that God's compassions never fail? They never fail. They're new every morning. That's good news today because that means no matter what you did this week, no matter how hard you fell in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, God's mercies are new today. That means you have an opportunity for a fresh start. God's not holding it against you. And he's not just sympathetic about the situation that you're in. He's not just sympathetic about your distress. No, he's compassionate. That means he has a desire to actually alleviate it. And he demonstrated that. And and we celebrate that in the cross. The reality that God loved us so much. He wanted so badly to alleviate our pain that he conquered the consequences. He conquered death itself. That's why we can sing, and I ran out of the grave with joy and with excitement because Jesus demonstrated 
his compassion. See, it wasn't just the God of the Old Testament that was compassionate. It was Jesus. When he walked this earth, he was filled with compassion. I love verses like Matthew 14 that talk about a difficult day in Jesus' life, a day when he was spent, he was worn out, he was exhausted, and all he really wanted to do was just get away. You ever wanted to just get away from people? And so Jesus gets into a boat, and he leaves, and he goes to the other side of the lake because he just wanted to get away. But Matthew 14, verse 14 says, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. I love the way Mark's gospel talks about Jesus. He said Jesus was moved with compassion. In other words, church, compassion was not a gimmick. How many of you ever felt like somebody was, was, was just using a gimmick, like bait and switch? You know, like, I, I'm going to do something nice for you just so I get your attention so I can get something from you. Jesus didn't bless people just because he needed them to follow him. How many of you know Jesus healed the sick? He clothed the, the naked and he opened blinded eyes and he fed the hungry. He touched the leper not because they followed him. He did it just because of who he was. That's compassion. It's not just compassion for the sake of conversion. We don't show compassion because of who people are. We show compassion because of who we are. So Jesus was filled with compassion in Mark chapter or Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 it says this about Jesus when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd when he saw them and I just wonder today how we see people Jesus didn't look at people as a project to be fixed, he looked at them as people to be loved. And I know that God is a God of compassion, and we can see clearly that Jesus was moved with compassion, but can I tell you today, church, God's spirit dwelling in the church ought to move us to compassion as well. He ought to compel us to be a compassionate people, and it's not, it's not just now, in this day, and in this hour, even in the Old Testament, we see pictures of God's people acting in compassion towards others. Let, let me give you one picture of that out of Jeremiah chapter 22 in verse 16. Because it's not describing God, it's talking about God's people. When it says, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so, all went well. And then God asked a question that ought to convict every one of us. It says, is that not what it means? To know me, declares the Lord. Maybe you've wondered before, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Maybe somebody's asked you, what, what, what is the church all about? Why do you really serve God? God asked this rhetorical question. He says, isn't this what it means? I mean, isn't this what it looks like to serve the Lord? To, to defend the cause of the poor and needy? And maybe you gotta ask yourself, I've been asking myself, is that what it looks like? Or have we lost sight of this core purpose for the church to be a people of compassion? 
When you look into the New Testament and we, we see the launch day of the church, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and all the things that we've been talking about in this series happen on that day. The people gathered and worshiped openly. The people proclaimed the gospel and evangelism. Disciples were made as they met house to house and encouraged one another. But compassion also was a result of the birth of the church. Just one verse out of that whole account in Acts chapter 2 shines some light on this point. It's verse 45. And it says, talking about the church, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, if you read that and you go, that's extreme. I mean, like that. That's extreme. That, that's uncommon. Can I tell you, it was for them too. It wasn't like, oh, different culture, different time. No, they had the same sinful, greedy nature that you and I have. But the reality is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God living in the life of a believer is a heart of compassion. And as the Spirit of God was moving and building the church and expanding the kingdom, they looked around and they saw people with practical needs like really practical needs. Some of the people that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the festival now stayed because revival had broke out and their life's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't have resources. They didn't have goods. They didn't have provisions. But none of them had any need because other people saw the need and they stepped up and they met them at the point of need. I want to just stay with this thought for a minute, church, because there's something incredible that happened early on in the history of the church. And we get a glimpse of it in Galatians chapter 2. Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to people that, that didn't, they weren't the sons and daughters of Abraham. They weren't the children of Moses. They, they didn't grow up as a covenant people with God. But Paul preached the gospel that said you can be saved by grace through faith. Any non-Jews here that are thankful that the gospel included you today? Amen. I thought there might be more than a few. And so they're preaching the gospel, but there's some other Jews that are coming behind them, and they're criticizing them. They're saying, you know what? Your gospel is empty. You're not, you're not teaching the people. I mean, th those men... They, they need to be circumcised because circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant with God. If they want to be a part of the covenant, they, they got to be a part of the cut. That's just the way it works, you know. <laughs> they looked at him and said, you're not teaching them the dietary laws. These, keep, these people, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't have a, a cured ham. I mean, you can't, you can't eat that and be a part of God's. you got to follow the laws. You're not following all of the Levitical laws. And Paul and Barnabas were concerned that their gospel was not going to be received and that maybe they had preached in vain. And so after 14 years of proclaiming the gospel, they go back to Jerusalem and they go right to the leaders of the church, Peter, James, and John. And they meet with them to tell them about how God's been moving and how Gentiles are getting saved. And they're not making them do any of the stuff that, that all the Jews do because I thought we were saved by Jesus and his death on the cross and, and our belief. And, and then he writes in Galatians chapter 2 about what they told him. Listen to these words. Paul says in verse 9, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they 
to the circumcised. Now, I want you to see verse 10 because this is such an incredible truth. Paul says, all they asked, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing that I had been eager to do all along. So catch the context of this. Paul is saying these men who were Jews by birth, who grew up in Judaism and following all of all of the religious and the societal laws going with that, these three Jews who became the best friends of Jesus, who was also Jewish, who also followed all those laws, who became a Jewish Messiah, these three friends who are now pastoring a Jewish church to Jewish people, Paul said, when I talk to them about what people need, what we need to be doing outside of preaching the gospel, they said, just make sure that you're taking care of the poor. In other words, the New Testament church always chose compassion over comfort. They always chose compassion over familiarity. They didn't want to bind people up in the things that they preferred because they did have their preferences just like we do. They said what really matters is that our heart still beats for the things that God's heart beats for. And God is a God of compassion. And so, yes, give them the gospel, but even if they don't follow all of our rules or live by our way, as long as they're following the gospel and they're living out that gospel, that's the most important thing. James would later write, one of those three men that encouraged Paul, James would later write in James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I don't know where this is landing with you today, church, but I get the feeling that maybe the church in some ways has drifted off course. As I'm talking about some scriptures that very clearly communicate what the church is about and what our priorities are. How many of you could testify that it seems like some have moved off the mark? And if you maybe ask your neighbors or if you ask your friends or your coworkers and you said, hey, what's the church about? Maybe they would give you a different answer than doing good to the community, than blessing the poor, taking care of the widow. Because there's a lot of things that we can be known for. But in the first century, they said, here's the main thing. Yes, preach the gospel. But do good deeds. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Many of you, you could quote this verse. You know this verse. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And some of us, we grew up in Sunday school singing about that light. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? And we hold our little light up, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. But what does it actually mean to let that light shine? What does it really mean? Because maybe we've developed our own interpretation over the years. You know, we preach the gospel, we proclaim the truth. But can I just take you back to the text? Jesus actually explained what it means to let your light shine. Two verses later, in verse 16, Jesus said this, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise the Father in heaven. Good deeds. Church, can I tell you one thing that can never change? It's our proclamation of the gospel. 
And we preached about it last week, but I don't mind saying it again. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So don't give me this stuff of like, well, I'm just going to let my life be a witness. I'm going to let my, you know, my morality, my decency, my, my nature, I'm going to let that witness to people. No, that, that, that you ought to have a good reputation, but it's the gospel that converts souls. So we've got to be about the good news. But can I just point something very obvious out in the text? There's a huge difference between good news and good deeds. And when Jesus said, let your light shine before men, he didn't say, let them hear your good news. He said, let them see your good deeds. Question for all of us, what are we putting before people? What are we putting before people? Because the reality is, if it's just words, then we become one more voice in the echo chamber of popular opinions. We become one more voice of disagreement in the marketplace of ideas. And maybe it's even worse than that because our logic is we're right and God says we're right. How does that go over? But how many of you know if, if we only have words and no deeds, then we're not communicating the gospel that Jesus called us to shine before people. I believe it's still true. Actions speak louder than words. And the danger is if we don't, if our word is not accompanied by our deeds, then we, we start arguing and debating with people. And you don't need me to tell you this. You can just go on social media and, and just, you know, respond to somebody's political comment with a scripture. Respond to somebody's opinion about COVID-19 with a verse. When you just throw the word of God out, there's no love, there's no compassion. All of a sudden, you begin to weaponize God's word against the very people we're called to reach. The sword of the Spirit is supposed to fight the enemy, not your neighbor. So we have to remember, church, that when it comes to winning the lost, it's about the lost, not winning. So Jesus said, let your light shine before men. So that they see, they don't just hear your good news, but they see your good deeds. Can I just say to us, church, in an age of information overload, I mean, in, a, in an age where everybody thinks they're an expert on everything because they have Google or YouTube search bar, we need to be seen. We need our experience of our transformation to speak to people before we can expect them to pursue their own transformation. It's that old principle of do as I do, not just do as I say. And can I challenge us? Because as I was praying about this this week, here, here's what I sense in my heart. That there's this temptation in church culture today, and maybe you felt this too, to just kind of go into hiding you know, almost into survival mode because the reality is our world is not just changing, our world is turning on us. Have you felt that? I mean, especially maybe if you're my age or older, you, you grew up in a, in a culture, if you grew up in America, that has Judeo-Christian morals. And so even if a person doesn't believe in God or the Bible, we all still, still grew up with a biblical morality. We grew up with that foundation. And all of a sudden now, that's not just unpopular, 
But for you to have a biblical worldview, it's called intolerant. And in some cases, it's illegal. So what do you do when all of a sudden just believing what the Bible says to be true becomes an illegal act? What do you do when the, the conversational tone of the culture becomes so, so violent and so slanderous and, and toxic that, that you, you feel like you can't get a word in or that people won't listen or hear you out and, and you just get pigeonholed into this group or you're a part of that group? What do you do in those moments? I can tell you what the temptation is. The temptation is to just circle the wagons, you know, like, like those people did when they were moving out west and, you know, there's Indians up in the mountains. We're just going to circle up the wagons and keep all the women and children inside and keep everything bad out. That can be the default response of churches. Can I just say, honestly, many churches have chosen that path. Many churches have just decided that, you know what, at least we have this one sacred corner of society one hour on Sunday, there's a sense of normalcy. One hour on Sunday that is ours and ours alone, and we can just kind of close the doors and, and shut the blinds and, and keep the world out, and we can at least just have our, our moment with God together. And I tell you, the problem with that church is that Jesus didn't establish the church to be a bunker for believers. He called the church to be a hospital for the hurting. He called the church to, to set up triage one, one yard from hell, to rescue the perishing. That's the heart of God. And so we can't, we can't become cynical and closed-minded and, and shut ourselves off from the world. How do we do it? How do, how do we overcome all the things that are changing? The key is a heavenly perspective. And I know, yeah, that, that sounds too easy. Now listen, I, I could spend the next hour taking you to scriptures because I did it myself this week of moment after moment after moment where the church, in the midst of great hostility, in the midst of great persecution, in the, in the midst of very difficult and changing circumstances where their response and their encouragement to other believers was to look heavenward, to lift their eyes, and to not have such a temporal and short perspective. Let me just give you a couple images of this. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. And I love this verse. If you know the story of, of Paul's life, it's almost comical, honestly, because Paul experienced so much hardship. The Bible tells us that, that Paul was shipwrecked. Another time, he was adrift at sea for days. The Bible tells us that, that Paul was naked at times. I mean, I, I've, I've been cold before, but I've had some clothes. I mean, he was naked. The Bible says he went hungry. If you've ever seen a movie like The Passion of the Christ, and you can envision what it was like for Jesus to be scourged with a cat of nine tails, Paul experienced that more than once. And he lived and he healed from it. And then it happened again. The Bible says in Lystra, Paul was stoned to death. So this guy faced so many hardships, and that's what makes this commentary almost comical because in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, here's how he described all that. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary 
I mean, come on. If, if Paul was living in the 21st century today, I have absolute confidence that he would, he would look at everything that's happened, global pandemic, COVID-19, he'd say, light and momentary. Financial crisis, the bottom falls out, lost my job, lost our nest egg, lost our income, light and momentary. Oh, you don't understand, my loved ones died in isolation. I couldn't be with them. We couldn't hold their hand because of everything going on. Light and momentary. Not because he's not empathetic, not because he didn't feel it. Trust me, he felt way more than you and I have ever felt in the way of persecution, but in light of the heavenly reward. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2 about Jesus, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Why should we look up towards him? He's the model. He's the example. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Have you ever wondered how did Jesus endure the cross? You know, some people, they, they, they don't understand history, and, and they, they just assume that, you know, Jesus' crucifixion was an isolated event, like Jesus was the only person ever crucified. I can promise you, Jesus was not the only person crucified. It, it was a Roman means of torture and execution for criminals. Can you imagine Jesus walking into Jerusalem time after time for most of his life and seeing people hanging on crosses? Bodies with an inch, an inch of death, with crows picking at their eyeballs. Can you imagine Jesus walking by that knowing, that's my destiny. That's where I'm going. I, I was born for this purpose. He prophesied many times, the Son of Man is going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. How in the world does Jesus see that image and move on in the Father's will? Hebrews 12.2 tells us it was for the joy set before him, that he endured the cross. Church, I don't think we think about heaven enough. I don't think we dream enough about the future that awaits us, the glory that God has for us. And, and this is a key, hear me, this is a key to, to survival of this unchanging purpose, compassion. Because if, if, we, don't, if we don't hold on to that, we're going to become cynical. And can I tell you, church, cynicism is the enemy of compassion. We've all been cynical before. It's, it's nothing that hasn't touched all of us, but cynicism becomes the enemy of compassion because a cynical mind says this. A cynical heart just, you know, sees a person in need and says, ah, what, what good would it do? They won't change. We, we've, we've helped them before. I, I know how this goes. You know, it, it's systemic. It's generational. It's cultural. You can help them, but you're just throwing your resources away. We know how this goes. Cynicism always assumes they know the rest of the story, and it's never good. And it cuts off a desire to show compassion for a people in need. Reality is, church, we, we don't show people compassion because of who they are. We show compassion because of who we are. And who are we? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God has prepared in advance 
for us to do. That's who we are. We're prepared in advance. God's prepared works for us to do good works. That's who we are. It's who we're called to be. And the way to stay true to that calling when everything is changing, to be able to say, well, nothing's changed about this. This is still who we are, is to get a heavenly perspective and to be encouraged. As, as the word says, Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not be unseen. Have a heavenly perspective about your reward. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you showed him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. What is it? It's a reminder to say, look, I know you feel like you're showing compassion and there's no result, but know this, God keeps a great record. God keeps score. He's numbered your days. He's even numbered the hairs on your head. He keeps great records. So this encouragement is don't, don't think that God's unjust. He sees what you're doing. Church, when it comes to compassion, this can't change. And I've been driving this point home about worship and discipleship and evangelism and compassion because I believe with all my heart God is getting ready to advance some things in our lives. I believe that. God is answering prayers. He's doing miracles. Some seen, some unseen. Let me testify right now for a minute. We just came off this 21-day fast. This is the first morning since January I haven't coughed. I've been praying for 21 days. God, take this cough away. You know what? I coughed until the 21st day. But today, Jesus healed me. Amen? Somebody give God praise. God's wanting to advance his kingdom agenda in our lives. How many of you know if we move forward and increase our momentum, but we move in the wrong direction, that's not advance. We have to be careful that we don't drift. There's a story I want to tell you as the worship team comes from the Middle Ages. A church sponsored a charity that was similar to modern-day food banks. It was called Montes Pitatus. I can't promise you I'm saying that right, but I couldn't find a good pronunciation online, so I'm giving it my best guess. But Montes Pitatus was basically created as an alternative to the loan sharks to help people manage their meager incomes. This charity, it provided low-interest loans to poor people, ensuring that they would be able to keep food on their table for their families. In the 1300s, when people would go into these establishments, they were greeted by a friar from the church. These shops existed to help people get back on their feet and these friars, when people would walk in to the Montes Pietus, they had their best interest in mind. They became so widespread throughout Europe that in 1514, even Pope Julius II gave an edict endorsing them. The institutions became the lifeblood for poor European peasants. Well, today, these establishments still exist. They go by a much easier name to pronounce. They're called pawn shops. Pawn shops. 
Now, when's the last time you walked into a, a pawn shop and thought, now, man, this is an establishment that's really lifting the burden of, of low-income families? I mean, when's the last time you drove by a pawn shop and thought, wow, these people really have a heart for those in need? I mean, come on, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, sling mud at you if you work in a pawn shop, but, I mean, let's be honest, they've missed the mark on their purpose. Usually pawn shops do the very opposite. They, they prey on people's vulnerability. They'll, they'll give you a, a shekel for your wedding ring because they know you need the money. And they'll rob you blind. But they were created for a purpose. And my question today is what about the church? What about us? Because when Jesus established the church, he established it for the purposes of worship, of discipleship, evangelism, and compassion. And nothing's changed. But do we reflect that? I love Francis Chan's description of the church in his book, Crazy Love. Here's what he said. He said, Christians are like manure. You spread them out. And they help everything grow better. But keep them in one big pile and they stink horribly. <laughs> it's pretty accurate, isn't it? Church, we got to spread out. We got to spread out in love and in compassion. I was so stirred this week. The Lord was dealing with me about this priority of compassion. I was just looking on a website of the Dream Center. Maybe you're familiar with the Los Angeles Dream Center. And now there, there's Dream Centers. It's a compassion-based ministry in 84 locations all over the world. And they're all a little bit different because they reach and minister to niche needs within their own communities. But the motto for the Dream Center is the same for all of them. And when I read the motto, I just, I just love this. Here's the motto. Find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. How much would the perception of the church be changed if, if we just live by that motto? Find a need and fill it. Find a hurt and heal it. Church, I, I believe so strongly in my spirit as I was preparing for this day and God was dealing with my own heart, I believe the spirit of God He's calling some of you back to the priority of compassion. I believe that God is wanting to birth ministries out of this church that are compassion ministries. Not a bait and switch to get somebody into discipleship. Not, 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 not compassion with an agenda. Just the love of Christ shed abroad. I believe God is calling some people in this church to a compassion ministry. And I want to invite you at the end of this service to just take a moment to allow the Spirit of the Lord to speak to you. Ironically, I, I was reading this week about the, the second law of thermodynamics. Don't ask me how I got there. But I am going somewhere with this thought. The second law of thermodynamics states that in the natural order of the universe, things degenerate rather than come together. And I got to thinking about that, and it's like, the, it's like my cast iron skillet that I like to cook with at home. If I take that hot skillet off the burner, 
the law of thermodynamics says that it's going to go back eventually to room temperature. I'm confident it will when I pick it back up with my bare hand. And so the only way for it to maintain heat is to be put back on the fire, to be put back on the burner. And can I just say that that the drift that we see in organizations like pawn shops and what we've seen in, in church history, it, it's, it's, it's backed up in science. And it can happen to us if we don't stay on the flame, if we don't stay near the fire of the Spirit of God, we will drift. We will grow cool in our purpose. The Apostle Paul understood it. He wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he said, Timothy, you got to fan into flame the gift of God that was in you at the laying on of my hands. Timothy knew that when the Apostle Paul put his hands on him and prayed for him, that something supernatural happened. God moved in his life. He had a gift that was imparted into his life. But Paul also understood that if, if Timothy takes his life off the altar, if he comes off of the flame, he's going to lose that gifting. And so he said, Timothy, fan into a flame the gift of God. Now, what he didn't say is ask God to fan it into a flame. He said, you fan it into a flame. He put the burden of responsibility on us. So I'm going to ask you to just make an altar right where you're sitting. And would you close your eyes and bow your head with me and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And maybe your response in this moment is to say, God, I'm putting my life back on the burner. I'm putting my life back on the flame. Maybe your, your perception or your practice of Christianity hasn't really included compassion. Maybe it hasn't really been about Worship. Maybe it hasn't been about discipleship or evangelism, but would you put your life back on the flame for a moment? And would you allow God to begin to reheat and reignite His purpose in your life? Father, today I, pr I cry out in intercession for the church. God, for those in the room, for those that are watching online, God, stir up in us the gifts of God. Maybe there's someone that you're calling into a practical ministry. Maybe there's someone you're calling into, into some work within the community. Maybe there's some good that you want us to do and not just some good that you want us to say. God, would you speak to us today? Would you break our hearts again for the things that break yours? God, that we would reflect who you are, that we would shine like a city on a hill. Lord, that this community would know not just our good news, but our good deeds, that we would bless. Church, I want to invite you to just respond to the Holy Spirit.